Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Zena Hitz is with us again. She teaches liberal arts at St. John's College in Annapolis and is the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of the Intellectual Life, which we covered here uh, a year or so ago. And her new book is A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hitz. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Now, by religious life, you mean much more than eh, going to church. As your examples of, of St. Anthony and St. Francis indicate, what are some of the some of the bigger features of the religious life? Well, uh, first of all, it's, it's Christian religious life that I focus on, uh, especially the Catholic and Orthodox traditions. So there are practices in other religions that are out of my expertise um, or sphere of knowledge. Expertise might be too strong a word. Um, Religious life is a a life that's of total dedication to God. And they're most familiar through the monastic communities, uh, monks, nuns, um, but also friars, um, dedicated priests, hermits, anchorites, anchoresses. Um, These have really been a part of the Christian landscape from its very earliest times. and And they still are a part of our Christian landscape. But they've lacked a bit of attention, I think, in the current environment, conversation about Christianity, and I wanted to bring that out. Yeah. Now, by, by a philosopher looks at, at the religious life, brings up issues of, of, of reason and, and spirit, and you, you actually say that religion is a matter not primarily of the intellect, but of the heart. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that religion offers um, something to our deepest longings, our, our sense as human beings that our lives are not adequate without something transcendent. And um, so reason is a wonderful, beautiful thing, but I think it does uh, serve motivation in many ways. So. It follows what we want. If we, we could use our reason to make a ton of money, if what we want is money, we can use our reason to um, become great civic leaders. But we could also use our reason to come to understand God better. But we do that just as in the other cases when we've recognized that that's what our hearts most long for. Um, and that just is, has been a, a part of my experience. I didn't, although I am a professional philosopher, um, and trained in philosophy, I came into the Catholic Church not because I followed an argument, 
by that point, I had I had figured out that arguments weren't going to be that great for the fundamentals. Um, and but my heart longed for something, and I I discovered that that thing was in the in the Christian churches and Catholic Church. You 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 do give some autobiographical. Uh, moments in the book. You, you did enter the Roman Catholic Church uh, rather late, after you'd started your academic career. Uh, did anything about your academic career have a have a role in in that process, either either in the sense of something was missing or in the sense of something supportive? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I'd say there there are sort of two answers to it. One is that there was something missing. So as I wrote about, especially in Lost in Thought, um, I have had, uh, my intellectual life has undergone certain very formative experiences that I've tried to articulate. So I was a natural bookworm from a young age. My family were amateur bookworms. We used to argue about everything. I went to a liberal arts college. And then I became a professional academic and I had the, was very fortunate to be able to go to elite institutions and I learned a ton in these places. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not um, against them exactly, but I did also find that my initial desires, my the habits of mind that I'd cultivated, the love of conversation, the sense that I was being dedicated to to, to truth and to uh, the cultivation of an inner life and to basic reflection on human truths, that had kind of disappeared from view for me, and I was left very uh, discontented. And I was especially discontented, and I think many, many academics can relate to this, that what I did felt useless. It felt like it was powerless against the um, forces of evil in the world and the, the generate mass generation of massive forms of suffering. And I wanted my life to respond to that feature of the world in some way. So that was, on the one hand, the negative part. Um, in a positive way, I think... Um, you know, I don't, I don't actually say this in the book, but it's true. It was a happy time in my life, my, my last years of graduate school. Um, I had what, Where were you in grad school? In uh, Princeton philosophy. Um, there was this wonderful community of students and teachers, um, and it was luxurious and comfortable and supportive in all the right ways. And I think part of me relaxed. Um, it's something that appears in Dorothy Day's autobiography also, she has this beautiful time in her life when she's she's living with her partner and she's pregnant and she's living out on Staten Island and collecting seashells. And um, she suddenly says, you know, there's something, I feel grateful for this and I don't know to whom. Uh, I think that's a fundamental draw to the religious life. You feel grateful. You know that God has been good to you, but you don't know who God is. Um, I think that was part of it too. The last thing I'll say is that... Um, and I, this I do say in, in the new book, that um, because of the style of philosophy I was trained in, it was very chaotic. And on the one hand, uh, in this elite program, you know, in, in Princeton philosophy, I was one of the dummies. I was kind of low on the totem pole of intelligence. Most of the people there were much, much more intelligent than me. And, you know, it was really uh, an incredible training and also very humbling just to try to stay in the conversation and find ho footholds into it. Um, and in that process, though, I did I did come to see these people, brilliant and 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 wonderful people in many ways. They didn't have any any wisdom as to how life worked or made it important. So I think it really helped me on the one hand in being a but yeah go ahead. But they were great on counterfactual factual conditionals. Exactly. Well, 
listen, those people <laughs> could produce a counterexample like nothing I've ever seen. And I'm so grateful for the training in that. I can still do yep. it sometimes. I still, when I'm listening to a talk, I'm like, well, what's the counterexample? What's the counterexample? Hmm. So you can, it's the, the critical powers of that type of philosophy are extraordinarily strong. You can find something yep. wrong with anything, but you can't find your way to the truth and, and the good life by finding things that are wrong. You have to be after something good and something positive and that takes something different. Yeah. Uh, later, after coming into the church, you actually entered a religious life. What led you to take that step? So um, I, I came into the church very shortly after finishing my degree. And I was in my um, first job down in Auburn, Alabama, which is a beautiful place. And um, I came into the church. And over the time, the, my first years in the church coincided with a, a really intensifying disillusionment with the life that I was living. It felt very empty and boring. Um, and I loved doing my research and my writing. And in every classroom I was teaching in, there were students who wanted to learn and I loved that. Um, but something was wrong and I couldn't figure out what it was. So I kept experimenting, you know, as a new Catholic with different kinds of things, different kinds of retreats and prayer routines and psychotherapy and this and that, volunteering. I did a ton of volunteering in I worked in hospices, in refugee resettlement centers, in uh, a soup kitchen in Baltimore uh, once I moved up there. And probably the crowning experience of my volunteer time was um, some volunteering I did in prisons in the Baltimore Women's Jail and in the Maryland Women's Prison, teaching philosophy yeah. and running Bible studies. But everything was all patchwork. You know, it was all, you know, me trying to stack one thing on the other. And I just felt like my life was completely incoherent and that I was being pulled in too many different directions at once. And I wanted um, to live wholeheartedly. I wanted to live a life that was directed at the most fundamental things and that was organized in that way. And being a Catholic and being curious about everything Catholic, I thought, well, there's a way people do this and that's called the religious life. Um, mm -hmm. And I met I met a number of religious during that time and incredible people, um, still the most incredible people I've ever known, um, just brilliant and wise and good and uh, disciplined. So I, I wanted to be like that. And, and so that's what drew me into the Madonna House community. Yeah. You speak of a phenomenon that you term lukewarmness. Uh, and you give examples of of this being a problem, not only for Christians, but for the ancients, too. What What, what is that phenomenon? Well, lukewarmness comes from um, jo uh, John in the book of Revelation. It's part of his visions where um, a person representing God says to him, um, you're neither too hot nor too cold, so I will spit you out of my mouth. Hmm. And then he explains, <clears throat> the speaker, the divine speaker, that it's because you think that you don't need anything. It's an illusion of self-sufficiency that's at the root of lukewarmness. So hmm. it's, it's a sense, I think lukewarmness could be best put in our contemporary context by saying it's an illusion that we can have everything. We can be wealthy, successful, um, we can have, you know, uh, attractive spouse and many children and live in someplace beautiful. We can love God. We can love our neighbor. We can be courageous and wise and um, disciplined and serve God in all respects. 
And the truth is, uh, our biblical sources and our traditions are quite clear that that's not the case. You can't have everything. Um, mm. To follow God requires a sacrifice. And that's not, um, that's not because God loves pain in and of itself. That's one of the things I, questions I work through in the book. It's because um, we need to be freed from that, that illusion of self-sufficiency. We need to see that every good thing that we have comes from God. And that's enormously hard work for us. That's the hardest thing in a human being's life to be able to do. Yeah. On, you know, on that score, as your examples point out, and Dorothy Day a moment ago, so many of the people who have everything, they have money, they have family, they have good looks, they, have, they seem happy. That They're the ones who end up renouncing the world um, often. Let me, let me ask, do you think it's possible to regard the academic life properly understood as maybe a milder form of worldly renunciation? Can, 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 is that possible today to, to do that? Um, it's quite difficult. Um, and that's not the fault of uh, Christians so much as it is the fault of our institutions, uh, which are failing us on every level in so many ways. Um, but I think it is, go if you look at the the tradition of an academic life, of which there's still some remnants, you know, through phrases like faculty governance and, and things like that, um, words which may have been be losing their meaning, but which still recall something. I think the same is true for doctors, uh, pastors and priests. Um, there are lives which are lives of service to the community, which require certain renunciations. That is, you you live off of what the community decides to give you um, as a reward for the special kind of work that you do as a profession. That's the traditional idea of a profession. And uh, so ideally, academic life, sure, you would be poor somewhat. You'd have enough to live, but you wouldn't be making money. Um, and you would have a bit of status in the weird way that academics have status, right? Where um, you have to be an insider to have even the slightest understanding of, of what the terms are. Um, and, uh, and, and real loving service in, in community to one another. Um, I see some vestiges of it. I mean, quite a lot of it, truthfully, still at St. John's where I teach now, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to come back to it. Um, but it is, it's a rare bird these days in academia to see uh, those remnants of monastic life, those remnants of a life of renunciation. And of course, yeah. without a without a self understanding that that's what we're doing and that's what this is about, it's quite hard to maintain an uh, institution of that kind and in that way. So, I mean, apart from all the other forces at work, we lack that self understanding. We lack <laughs> that sense of what human life is all about, which is uh, loving service to God and neighbor. It's not about anything else. That doesn't mean that everything else is bad. That doesn't mean you have to like burn your cash and dissolve your bank accounts and burn down your house. But it does mean that you have to spend some time really um, see, looking into your heart and seeing what matters most to you. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. 
Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Mortification comes up in your in your study, which has traditionally been been something involved in the religious life. You say at one point, mortification is training in love. What do you mean? How so? Well, again, if our if our default mode, which I think it is, our default mode is lukewarmness. Um, it's a, a, a sort of sense of comfortable self-sufficiency and a sense that really we're probably giving enough, we're serving enough, we're loving enough. Um, and one of the things I've, I've learned from my wise elders in uh, the religious life is that it's never about loving too much or loving enough. The problem with us is always, 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 100% of the time, it's not loving enough. Um, so in order to love, we need to discipline ourselves in the manner of, of soldiers or athletes. Those are familiar forms of discipline where we are not um, attached to every little thing going our way. We're not attached to every little creature comfort. We know how to live without. Um, we know how to do without. And that's, that happens at every level of life. It's, it's uh, social interactions, it's material goods, it's um, having your own way. And when we do that, we become more and more capable of making a sacrifice when that's really what's demanded and when the time comes. We love these stories of great sacrifices. You know, the figure of Socrates laying down his life for philosophy or Martin Luther King getting assassinated in his fight for racial justice. But those those sacrifices had to be prepared for by um, uh, a, a certain cultivation of, of your character so that when the time comes, you can make the most difficult choices. Uh, but the way most of us are, we never even see that there are difficult course choices because it's so important to us to be perfect and good and comfortable that we don't even let ourselves see the cases where what might be in order is a sacrifice of some kind, yeah. a loving sacrifice. Did, did your experience doing Bible study in the, in the local women's jails give you lots of lessons in that? Oh my gosh, it was really maybe the best thing I ever did. Um, it was so profound. It was, um, you know, if you're a middle-class person like myself and you think, I'm gonna go help the poor and you think I've got a lot to give them, um, I'm going to give them all of my talents and charm and um, gifts. And what you discover, and what I discovered very dramatic way, because it was such an awful place, um, you know, there was a foul smell coming out of the cafeteria, and the women, you know, were put in dorms of uh, 30 to a room, um, and uh, the sewers would overflow outside every time it rained. I mean, it was just the bottom of the... Uh, the bottom of the American barrel, as far as I could see. And the, and the women who came to the group were, they always had words of gratitude, genuine gratitude. And what they always wanted to talk about was how good God had been to them. Uh, these were people who'd been taken off the street with nothing. They often didn't even own, they had just the clothes on their back and the, the jail chaplain would have to supply them with toothpaste and various soap and other things like that and a spare change of clothes. But they were, and they, but they understood because of the uh, difficulty of their circumstances, 
they understood that they were totally dependent on God. They understood that much, much better than I did. Um, and I'm still, in a way, um, trying to live the lessons that those women uh, taught me or tried to teach me. Um, that, that, you know, it's, um, you know, you, it's, it's not a good thing to be in jail. Not, it, it, it's the worst thing in a way that um, is, in a, you know, one of the worst things that could happen to you. Um, but somehow, if what, the people who had undergone something like that had seen God's presence uh, in a very well, powerful well, way, in a way that, in a way that you and I probably don't. Frankly. Was was your Bible study with them for many of them their first introduction to the Bible? No, most of them had no. had some acquaintance with the Bible. Um, what I did that was a bit maybe unusual was that I didn't. It was more of a we had a sort of faith sharing conversation. So we would read pieces of the Bible, and then the women would talk about what it meant to them. Um, so it wasn't didactic. I wasn't trying to teach them or explain it to them. Um, yeah. But they were hungry. Believe me, they were absolutely hungry for any any spiritual nourishment. You know, you'd bring in like some holy cards or some rosaries. Or whatever. It would all fly off the table. Um, yeah. And if you think about, if I, I've thought about that in respect to sort of your standard middle class parish, where you know people flip out because you've changed the mass time by a half hour or something. You know, there's a real mm-hmm. sense of this is something that we have, it belongs to us, we're entitled to it, and not a sense of, oh my gosh, like what an incredible gift it is to have faith, to have means of worship, to have modes of prayer, um, to have pathways of help and, and wisdom in our worst circumstances. Um, yeah. yeah. You tell the story of, I uh, hope I pronounce her, her name correctly, Catherine Dehweck yes, Doherty? Yes, that's right. Uh, what what's her story? What what did what did she found? So she's founded actually two communities. Um, one the last one was Madonna House, which is the community I belong to. Um, the first was a community called Friendship House, which worked for interracial justice mainly in Harlem. And those of you who have read um, the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, he describes his experiences volunteering there. Um, mm. So she was a well known figure at that time. Um, she was a laywoman. Uh, not a religious, and she'd been a um, she was married to an a Russian to a Russian aristocrat at a young age, and was a, a refugee from the Russian Revolution. Um, so she went from this extreme kind of wealth and privilege to arriving as a refugee in Canada with absolutely nothing, um, and mm-hmm. having to work menial jobs to support her son. And this was in the 30s, so when times were bad all around. Um, so she finally made her way um, out of poverty into a kind of middle class existence um, and then felt troubled. She felt like there was something she had seen and understood as a poor person that she had lost as a middle class person. Um, and so she started to discern, you know, forms of service. Um, and uh, so it's anyway, that's that's who Catherine Norton is. She's she, she a spiritual writer and a very... Um, I don't know the the kind of figure who I think we maybe don't hear quite enough about in 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 our mainstream Christian life of a very fully human person who lived a life like ours, um, but who nonetheless uh, and who spoke like us and walked with us you know, and so on, but who nonetheless gave clear signs of having given everything to God, having given her whole life uh, to God and, and service. 
So yeah. um, what 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 is what is Madonna House? What goes on there? Um, it's a so it's it's not a formal institute of religious life. It it it, it may be at some point they're working uh, with with the, the Roman Curia to find a a legal structure. Um, but they are a uh, a community uh, of men and women who who live vowed in poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, they renounce usually work in the world, so they don't generally have jobs. They live off of donations. They have a very uh, intense kind of poverty. And in that respect, they're more like a cloistered community, like a community of monks or nuns. But the door is open. They have guests. They they have a uh, one wall open to the world, so to speak. Um, and they they're, they mix action, what you'd call action and contemplation. So they pray. Prayer is the center of what they do. They also do various kinds of service in their communities. They run a couple of soup kitchens and some other services to the poor in the area um, and host uh, various kinds of faith-sharing events in their, in their houses. Um, yeah. that's, been, that's been on a house. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you write at one point a phrase that I think, that a sentence that should be repeated endlessly to, to millennials and Gen Zers. Silence is not emptiness. And, I, I, you know, I found that a whole lot of young people, it, it is emptiness and it's unendurable. And now they have a tool to fill the silence at, at, at all times. Why is silence so difficult for them? Well, I feel obligated um, as someone who spends a lot of time with the young people to say that we also struggle with the silence so <laughs> many of my peers and even people my parents' age, they're also addicted to their devices and they find the silence empty. Um, but I, I do think that we need to be, and I'm not, I know I'm not the only person who says this, um, we have to think much more carefully about this, these devices and the technology and the changes that they're making in our lives. Um, there's, and it's, it's not in a way, not hard to understand. There are people making billions of dollars off of the sale of our attention and the sale of the attention oh, of yeah. young people. So in a way it's quite straightforward. I mean, someone figured out how to make money off of people's attention and so they're doing it, but we do have the power. We do have the power to withdraw our attention. We always have that power. It is, it is one of the main, um, it's like the brick wall of human freedom. Like the one thing that you can always do, the one thing you always have power over is your mode of attention um, and how you choose to experience whatever you're experiencing, however, however bleak it is. And so um, this book, like my first, um, is really a call to reclaim our attention and to remind ourselves of all of the humanity, all of the human goods that are lost when we don't, um, when we can't be silent, when we can't be mm -hmm. alone, and when we're not left to our own devices to some extent. I mean, it, there's a bit of pain in it, but that pain is just the beginning of uh, a, a bunch of goods that you can't get any other way. It's just the, yeah. it's just the price of entry, that, that discomfort and the pain and the fear of emptiness, it's just the price of entry to everything that people have ever cared about. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think, more or yeah. less what's at stake. It's like everything that people have ever cared about is at stake. So for God's yeah. sake, you know, tear your attention away from that stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, man, I, 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 I will tell them, look, if you find the silence unendurable, pray. Yes, okay? yes. Fill the silence with prayer. Yes. Uh, and, and you'll find that, that, that the silence actually can be a form of fullness. Oh, yes, right? yes. It, it can. It, it, what, what, uh, what is the prayer that you highlight known as Pustinia? So that's a prayer where you spend, and anyone can do this. It's part of its beauty and simplicity. It's a prayer where you spend 24 hours in silence and solitude. So it's nice if there's a special room for it or a cabin in the woods like we have up in Canada. They're very beautiful. And you fast. So you, you have bread and water or maybe some protein if you need that for your dietary needs, like a hard-boiled egg or something. Um, and the beautiful thing about it is that um, you can't... So I love your advice when the silence feels unbearable, pray. But sometimes we think of prayer as being this thing that we accomplish, you know, that if we did, you know, we say this many decades of the rosary, or we say this, this prayer this many times, or we say the divine office, that somehow we've accomplished it. And in a way, what we're doing is we're being our, our, our sort of busy workaholic selves in our prayer lives. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things. I mean, they can help you focus. They're wonderful devotions. They're, they're full of life. But what happens in the 24 hours is that all of your defenses break down and you're left with to face whatever it is that you're not facing, which is often emptiness, loneliness, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. But it's the truth about what you care about and what's going on in your life. And it's that that we're hiding from when we... Um, when we distract ourselves in all of the ways that we do. Um, so it's a very profound, very beautiful kind of prayer. And there's Madonna houses in various parts of the country. I know some of your listeners are probably in the DC area. They have a wonderful house with Pustinia rooms. Um, and uh, it's, it's a type of prayer that, that's part of their uh, service to the world to teach. Um, mm. It's very beautiful and, and perfect for people like us because, okay, you may not have, uh, you know, if you're like me, you always want a, a diet, an exercise routine, and a prayer routine. And if you're like me, they collapse within about a week of attempts. You know, they just can't hold it together. But you can find 24 hours. You can find 24 hours to reconnect with God, reconnect with your deepest self, reconnect with the truths about yourself. Try to make your way through some of the, some of the tangles that are deep down in your soul and are holding you back from from living a, a flourishing, happy life. Yeah. That there's more profiles of Catherine of Siena and, and Edith Stein, uh, Walter Sizek, or Chizek. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce that exactly, but for now, the title of the book is A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life. Mm-hmm. Professor Hitz, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.